First Samuel chapter 24, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it and read with me. In first Samuel, chapter 24, verse one, it says, now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave and Saul went in to <clears throat> attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, this is the day which the Lord said to you. Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master. The Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. David also arose afterward, went out of the cave and called out to Saul, saying, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul. Why do you listen to the words of men who say, indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave and someone urged me to kill you. But my eyes spared you and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see. Yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you would hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom is the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog, a flea? Therefore, let the judge, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul and Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Then he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you've rewarded me with good, whereas I've rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you didn't kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? 
Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul and Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Most of you have heard the expression, revenge is a dish best served cold. What is that? What is revenge? Revenge is a harmful response to an individual or a group because of some real or perceived grievance. In many ways, revenge resembles justice, but it is a perverting. It's a distorting of justice. Francis Bacon called it a kind of wild justice. And even Christians can be caught up in the trap of trying to even the score We've all experienced it. Someone hurts you, and so you want to hurt them back. Someone hits you, you want to hit them back. You're upset with someone the way they treated you, the way your parents treated you, the way your children treated you, the way your employees treated you, the way your employer treated you. You're upset with the political system and the way it treats you. You're upset with the judicial system. You're upset with a friend who turns out to be an enemy. Hundreds of people lost millions of dollars through trusted advisors who turned out to be sophisticated scammers. The reality is that most of us will never be able to make it all the way through life without someone having hurt us. And so the issue inside of our hearts is, what am I going to do? Revenge is a word polite people refuse to use in a polite society. We call it something else. You hurt me. And I have my rights. I have rights. We justify our rights because we're told from an early age that I'm not going to be anybody's doormat. You've all heard the expression, I'm mad as you can fill in the blank. And I'm not going to take it anymore. We call it justified retaliation. This person hurt me. I'm not going to let him get away with it. Does that sound familiar? David is being pursued, hotly pursued, hounded by Saul. And Saul is driven and Saul is cruel and Saul is relentless and Saul is driven by jealousy, coupled with fear, compounded by demons. Now, when a person is committed to your destruction, that's a horrible place to be in. Once again, David's character is being forged in a crucible of fire. 
And David may have entered the wilderness as a young man, but he's fast becoming a seasoned saint. He's becoming what we would call a wilderness wise man. He is in the wilderness and he's wandering. But in those wanderings, it's providing a training ground for David and his men. We've already repeated that this core crew is going to make up the leadership of David's future kingdom. Saul is king, but David will be king. And in the reality of the world in which we live, we know that the New Testament says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. In first John, he's described as the God of this world. But we also know that there will come a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But you look around and you say, well, why isn't Jesus Lord now? Why isn't he the Lord in my family? And why isn't he the Lord even in my church? And why isn't he the Lord in the world? You'll notice that we rarely begin at the beginning. Why isn't he the Lord in my heart? David will be king. But he will be king one of two ways. David will be king on God's terms. Or David will be king on David's terms. And we know that God has a plan for you. And the plan that God has for you is going to be accomplished in God's will, according to God's plan, according to the mechanism that God has outlined. But some of you in a, in a quick desire to have an instant circumstance of your life completely satisfied you are trying to push God's agenda a little bit too quickly and guess what if you try to do God's will but not God's way a legitimate goal can become an illegitimate goal and it can bring reproach on the Lord and it can possibly be even harm the gospel Jesus gives us God's heart on the matter. Here's what Jesus said. Remember, Jesus said, you have heard that it's, it said, love your neighbor. But I say, not only love your neighbor, but love your enemies. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who despitefully use you. And David's future famous son is going to literally communicate how God wants you to operate in the world in which you find yourself in. Paul also gives us God's heart on this matter. In Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 19, we're instructed not to pay evil with evil. In verse 19, it says, Beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And, and one of the key expressions in verse 19 of Romans chapter 12 is give place to wrath. You may not know what that means, so I'm going to help you understand it. Give place to wrath means believe. Believe with all of your heart. Believe with all of your mind that there is such a thing as judgment. Let me help you understand this. What Paul is basically saying is don't even imagine for a single second that every wrong won't be righted because it will. God will right every wrong. God will bring to fruition every single evil and injustice that has ever occurred. 
Another way of putting it would be in this. Believe in God's punishment. God will not let wickedness or unrighteousness or sin go unpunished. People don't like to be injured. Unless you have a a, a whole different problem, which you can talk with me after the service. If you like being hurt, then there's something really wrong with you. If you dislike being hurt, well, good for you. Our first instinct in our fallen nature begs us to return evil for evil. That's why in the Old Testament it says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. It wasn't meant in order to make everything right. It's because in our wickedness, in our fallen nature, if you hit me in my eye, I want to hit you in both of your eyes. If you knock out one of my teeth, I want to knock out all of your teeth. You kill somebody in my family, I kill everyone in your family. The whole point wasn't to exact some sort of parody. It was to limit our wickedness because when someone hurts us a little, we want to hurt them a lot. And David, like Jesus, comes to a crossroads in his life. You've all heard the expression, what would Jesus do? In this chapter, we can properly ask the question, what would David do? Well, this provides the outline. David will refuse revenge. David will risk reconciliation. David will will move to restore the relationship. And guess what? That becomes part and parcel for you. It's guess what? When you are hurt, rather than seek revenge, you should refuse it. Rather than want to completely destroy the relationship, risk reconciliation. Move to restore the relationship. Is that what's going to happen in this chapter? Not completely. Not completely. Let's go back into the cave together. And verse one, it says, now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, take note, David is in the wilderness of En because he is the king. He has to secure the borders and provide for the common welfare, if you will. And now that the Philistines have been dealt with, he can turn his attention to David and he finds and discovers that he's in the wilderness of En And by the way, En means the spring of the goat. And again, for those of you who go to Israel with me, we usually take time to go to En It's right by the Dead Sea on the King's Highway. And there's a gigantic um, cliff, if you will. And to this very day, um, Israeli chil- school children visit this national park of En And the place is filled with crevices. There's limestone outcroppings everywhere you go. And there's this abundance of caves and Engedi is an oasis in the middle of the desert. As a matter of fact, if you go a little bit further south toward Masada, the Roman troops who trapped the, uh, the, the Jewish people who had revolted against Rome, um, they would march from Masada to Engedi in order to get fresh water supplies. And in verses two and three, it says, then Saul took three thousand chosen men from all Israel. Think Mossad. Think a crack 
unit of killers. These are 3,000 chosen men who are who know how to kill people. Here's their job. They find people and they kill people. And he went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. That's in Gedi. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave and Saul went in to attend to his needs. Now, different scholars will tell you that the Hebrew here means different things. Some will say, oh, he went in to take a nap. I don't think that that's probably the meaning of the text. It says that David and his men were staying in the recess of the cave. Now, again, he has 3,000 highly trained, highly skilled combat warriors. The whole, now, when you have 3,000 people out to kill you, you can see how it's easy to think the whole world is after me. The whole world is trying to destroy me. They're trying to destroy me. They're trying to destroy my marriage. They're trying to destroy my life. And what are the chances of Saul entering into the exact cave at this exact moment? Now, one of the things that I need to remind you is the Bible is a book not about fictional people, but about real people. And in the real world, people go to the bathroom. And that's probably what this passage means when it says that he went to attend to his needs. Now, what's interesting is Saul goes into this cave to attend to his needs. He's surrounded by Israeli troops everywhere that you can imagine. No one goes in to check out the cave. There are guards posted outside of the cave, but nobody goes into the cave to check out the cave. And Saul hikes up his robe. And the moment that he hikes up his robe, he is vulnerable. That brings new meaning to the word exposed. Vulnerable. By the way. When your enemy is exposed and when your enemy is vulnerable, when your enemy is at risk, everything inside of your body goes, I'm going to get you now. You hurt me and now I am going to hurt you. By the way, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. And if you forget the rest of this message, I hope you remember this. What you do when your enemies are vulnerable and exposed tells you something about your spiritual condition. What you do says something about your heart. And now we begin to understand something about what the New Testament says when it says, hey, loving your family and loving your neighbor, that's not that big of a deal. Love your enemy 
What does that mean? Does that mean to have warm, fuzzy feelings whenever your enemy goes by? No, it means a willingness to do what's right towards them. And in verse four, look what it says. Then the men of David said to him, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now, Think about this. David's men see this as a sign from God that God has delivered David's enemy into David's hand. Has God given David the opportunity to execute revenge? Or to take the high road? David's men are trained to fight. They are warriors. And when you are trained to fight, you are trained to spot weakness and you are trained to exploit weakness. Make no mistake about it. You would be making a serious mistake if you think of David as anything other than a warrior. He is a warrior. Let's just be blunt here. David kills people. David will be the king. And he will be the king on God's terms or he will be the king on his own terms. But I want you to note a couple of things. Number one, David refuses revenge even though the circumstances allowed it. And this becomes an important issue for you because you might be thinking, well, the circumstances are such that I could really hurt this person or I could really expose this person or I could really ruin this person's life or ruin this person's ministry or ruin this person's marriage or ruin them the way they ruined me. David refuses revenge even when his counselors encourage it. David, David, we've been running, David. Every day, day after day, week after week, month after month, he exists to kill you. He wants to kill you. He wants to kill you. Now is your chance. Now is your chance to make the despair go away. Now is the chance to make the fear go away. Now is the chance to make all of this go away. And they, if they seem to even quote the Bible. Ooh, think about it. This is the day which the Lord said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand. If ever there was a person who was justified in getting rid of Saul, it's David. And clearly David's men have an axe to grind. Saul has put them in debt. Saul has put them in distress. Has someone ever hurt you so bad? And you decided to get advice from other people. And other people said, he hurt you, she hurt you, they hurt you, they hurt me too. They hurt you and they hurt me. And here's what my advice is. Let's hurt them back. That's exactly what David's men are saying. And some Christians are even willing to use God talk to disguise it. You know, well, you know, the Lord showed me or the Lord led me to this person or the Lord seemed, you know, why? If the Lord didn't want this person in my life, then why would the Lord have brought the person into my life? Did it ever occur to you that Satan may have brought this person into your life? 
particularly if the net result is you disobey God, you betray your marriage, you betray the circumstances that you find yourself in. David is learning what it means to love his enemy. Some people think that opportunity is sufficient grounds to do what's wrong. But David is, is coming to grips with something. David is beginning to understand the meaning of the word grace. He's beginning to understand the meaning of what it means to be generous and what it means to be gracious and what it means to love your enemy. And you will never, I repeat, you will never know what it means to love your enemy until you've been put, placed into a position where that's exactly what you have to do. David gives Saul grace when Saul deserves death. By the way, does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound like something that David's future famous son would do? Doesn't that sound what Paul wrote about in the book of Romans chapter 5 when he says, Here in his love, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus didn't come because you went to church and because you were a perfect person and because you read your Bible and because you prayed and you decided at some point that you were going to be a good person and everything was going to be changed, that you were going to be a good person because you weren't a good person before. No, Jesus loved you and died for you when you were an enemy, when you were in rebellion and disobedience, when you were shaking your fist at God. When you were yelling and screaming and complaining, God, why have you done this to me? The Bible says that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus. And Jesus gives us grace. And we deserve death. Sometimes it's hard for us to imagine ourselves as enemies of God. But that's exactly what we were. In rebellion and disobedience saying, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do whatever I want to do. You know what I'm going to think? Whatever I want to think. You know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say whatever I want to say. And you know what else I'm going to do? I'm going to do whatever makes me happy. I'm going to do whatever satisfies me. I'm going to do what makes me happy. But God's holy word describes the circumstances of our life apart from God and apart from Christ as wickedness and rebellion and disobedience. And Jesus saves us and Jesus spares us. Not when we're friends, but when we're enemies. And David cuts off a piece of Saul's robe. I want you to see the picture. The cave is pitch black. There is no light. You can't see. Now, maybe David's eyes are just a little bit better because he's uh, adjusted because he and his friends have been in the cave for a very long time. And, and Saul walks into the darkness and he finds a very private, dark corner and he hikes up his robe and he begins...
Hot dogs, kosher hot dogs. What kinds of kids eat kosher hot dogs? Fat kids, skinny kids, kids who climb on rocks and in Getty. Tough kids, sissy kids, even kids with chicken. And all of a sudden, while he's doing whatever it is that he's doing, David has a sharp, razor-sharp knife, and he begins to peel away part of his robe. J. Vernon McGee said, May I say my friend Saul went into the cave, but he left the cave in a miniskirt. I like that. And in verse 5, it says, now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. Now think about what's happening. Instead of gloating, David's conscience begins to bother him. Instead of his conscience going, Saul, lucky dude, you should be lucky you're alive. I could just as easily have taken that knife and Look at where the sun doesn't shine. You're lucky to be alive. David could have killed him, but he didn't. Instead, David will embarrass Saul in part to make a point. But I want you to, to think about what's happening here. David took a small step. He didn't take a gigantic step. He took a small step in the direction of revenge. A simple, small step. But that one step pricks the heart of the conscience of the person who's going to be king. Because guess what's happening? He's not only beginning to think like a king and he's not only beginning to act like a king, but he is starting to develop the sensitivity of a person who understands that there's a right way to do things and there's a wrong way to do things. And did you notice that when you became a Christian, when you invited Jesus Christ into your life, that all of a sudden there was a sensitivity that began to develop on the surface of your soul and things that you used to allow yourself to get away with, it started to bother you. And you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal? Hey, think about it. This guy's gotten off way lucky. But whenever you take a step in the direction of disobedience, it's important for those alarms to go off inside of your heart. This is wrong. This is wrong. That's not right. This is wrong. Your conscience is a moral organ. Now, let me help you with that. Your conscience doesn't know what's right. Your conscience just simply motivates you to do what's right. I'll give you the example of, the, of your stomach. Remember, your stomach secretes juices. Your stomach says, I'm hungry. Feed me, feed me, feed me. But your stomach doesn't know what to eat. You have to decide what you're going to stick in your mouth and swallow because the truth is your stomach will attempt to digest whatever you throw down there. So you have to make an informed decision. And guess what? You have to inform your conscience. And that's why you can talk to certain people and you can say, look, this isn't right. And they'll look you straight in the eye and they'll say, it's right for me. Who's informing your conscience? Your feelings? 
the hurt, the injury? Or is the Bible informing you? Is it the word of God that is informing your conscience? Let me ask you a a hard question. Do you feel guilty when you do what's wrong? Not just the big things, not the enormous things, not the marriage destroying things, not the career ending things. The little things. When you walk with God, even the little acts of rebellion and disobedience become a very big deal. Did you steal a paper clip from work? Give it back. Did you rip the company off for an hour of work? Well, then work for two hours for free. Pay them back. Thank God when your conscience won't let you get away with little things or big things. Make it right. Don't tell yourself, this doesn't matter. This doesn't matter. It's no big deal. When in fact it does matter. Look at verse 6. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is anointed by the Lord. This is David's way of saying, God put him in the position of authority and power. And if he is going to disappear, it is God who's going to have to make him disappear. The sensitive heart of the future king has been pricked. David is in effect saying, no matter how painful this is, and no matter how hurtful this is, and no matter the fact that I have lost my home, and I have lost my marriage, and I have lost my job, and I find myself in the middle of nowhere running for my life, I'm going to allow God to do what God must do. You see, the truth is, in the military, you respect the rank, even if you don't agree with the man. In the church, you respect the office. You respect those people who have been called to be overseers of your souls. And I've heard people interpret and misuse this verse in a number of bizarre fashions. The scripture isn't here justifying Christian leadership or excusing sinful behavior or exempting leaders in the church to not be accountable for their wicked and sinful behavior. Just because your pastor is your pastor doesn't give them the right to sin against you or the church. The pastor has every responsibility to do exactly what you do. Confess sin. Repent of sin. Turn from sin. So when people say, don't touch God's anointed, some of them suggest that this is some sort of, of, of excuse for not doing exactly what needs to be done. No matter how unfair Saul has been to David, David refuses revenge. This is what the Bible means when it says don't return evil for evil. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. 
And in verse seven, it says, so David restrained his servants with these words and didn't allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and he went on his way. Now, look at again in verse seven. David restrained his servants with these words. I want to put this in a different context. Do you ever think even for a moment? Just even for a moment, do you ever stop to think even for a moment that Jesus, the son of David, restrains his servants, the angels, from giving you exactly what you deserve? Do you see what you did, Lord? Yes, I did. Angel, go ahead and smite him. Smiteth him because he deserveth to be smiteth. I just want you to pause for just a moment. And you don't have to go back yesterday or the day before. Just today. The things you did today, the thoughts that you thought today, the words that you spoke today, the deeds that you did today. Would Jesus have been absolutely justified in turning off your lights and saying, hmm? Time to come home. Let me ask you something. Did you get what you deserved today? You see, David's son restrains the angels from bringing judgment on me and on this church and on this city. And on this country. Have you ever stopped to consider. That out of all the sinful and foolish decisions. Made by me. Made by you. Made by our leaders. Made by this country. Has it ever stopped to occur to you. That Jesus would be perfectly Within his prerogative to release the angels and bring judgment on the planet Earth. But Jesus says, not yet. You're going to get to live one more day, one more week, one more month, one more year. I saw this from an entirely different perspective. God has given us mercy and God has given us grace and God help us all. David is declaring a righteous principle which we would all do well to heed. Is Saul wrong? The answer, yes. Would people cry a single tear or blame David even for one moment? Will, will anyone, even when we come to the end where Saul gets killed and his his carcass is pinned to the wall at Gilboa. Does anyone go, oh, I just feel really bad about him. No. No one's going to cry a single tear. It's sort of like Hitler. You know, he's in his bunker and, and he shoots himself in the head and people pour gasoline over him and then they light him on fire. Does it, do, it, are people going around, I feel so bad, that's a furious calm. No, nobody cries a single tear. This is interesting to me. Was it David's job to make Saul go away? 
if I've taught you anything, I hope that you're able to answer this question. Was it David's job to make Saul go away? Whose job is it? Will Saul go away according to the plan and the purpose of of the Lord? Will David be king according to the plan and the purpose of the Lord? What will make your enemy go away? What will make the person or the thing or the circumstance that is creating so much pain and so much sorrow and so much grief, what will make it go away? I'm going to suggest something to you. It's okay for you to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I am willing for the thing that is causing me so much sorrow and so much pain to disappear, but I want it to disappear on your terms. And God help us when we mock. Just a little. Because sarcasm is a sorry substitute for honor and obedience. And the truth is, I find myself in an incurable circumstance where I, where every molecule in my body wants to mock the leaders of this country. But will mocking them solve the problem? No. God help me. David persuaded his men. Look what it says in verse 7. So David restrained his servants. I love the word restrained. The reason why, it's an interesting word in the Hebrew language. The word restrained means to tear into pieces. That's the right picture, too. That's the picture that's being given in the scripture. The picture that's being given in the scripture is David's men want to tear Saul to pieces the way a a bunch of dogs would come and literally rip a chicken to pieces. It means ripped apart. It means torn apart. And, And David tore them apart with his words. He ripped them to pieces. The same word is used in Isaiah chapter 53, where it says he was wounded for our transgressions. The word translated restrained in first Samuel chapter 24, verse seven is translated wounded. In Isaiah chapter 53. He was torn to pieces. Jesus was ripped apart for our transgressions. You know that thing that stirs inside of your heart when you want the people who hurt you and you want to tear them to pieces and the reality is the Bible makes it abundantly clear that Jesus was torn to pieces, ripped apart for your sin and for my sin. Can you imagine how the conversation unfolded? David, don't be a fool. David, now's the chance. David, make him go away. If Saul is dead, we won't have to wake up every single morning wondering if today is the day that we die. But David stood for a righteous principle. And the men were persuaded. 
David stood for a righteous principle. I want you to think this through. God placed him in that position of authority. It's God who will remove him. That's that's the principle. See, it may not make a whole lot of sense to you, but that's the principle that's given in the Bible for children concerning their parents. It is the Lord God who made your father your father. It's the Lord God who made your mother your mother. It's the Lord God who made your boss the boss. It's the Lord God who who gave that guy a gun and a badge when he pulls you over. You respect the authority. Will you stand for a righteous principle? Will you come right out and say that right is right and wrong is wrong and good is good and evil is evil? Will you come right out and say abortion is the painful killing of an innocent life, that partial birth abortion is evil? Will you go on record? Will you go on record and say this is right and this is wrong and this is good and this is bad? Have you already started to compromise? Are you leaning just a little too heavily on rationalizations for sinful behavior? It's not that big of a deal. Has the Lord God spoken to you? Has the Holy Spirit urged you to turn from your sin and to turn from your wickedness? Few things are more infectious than a godly lifestyle. And the people you rub shoulders with every day need a challenge. Not to be prudish and not to be preachy. Just honest to goodness, bone deep, non-hypocritical integrity. People need to experience authentic obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when Mother Teresa had an audience with our former president and his wife, our Congress, she spoke to them about killing innocent children and they sat silently and they listened and no one accused Mother Teresa of extreme views. No one attacked her faith and no one attacked her integrity. They all hung their heads in shame. Because how do you say to this little woman? Well, you know, that's not very charitable. Yeah, you laugh for good reason. How do you accuse a person of being selfish when they're selfless? How can you accuse a person of being a liar when they're honest? How can you accuse a person of telling a lie when they're telling the truth? The Bible says in Proverbs 16, 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And for a brief moment, it's going to happen. In verse eight, it says, so David also arose afterward. He went out the cave and he called out to Saul and he says, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and he bowed down. And David said to Saul in verse nine, why do you listen to the words of men who say, indeed, David seeks your harm? We're going to pause for just a moment and I need to tell you something. You know what David does? He tells the king the truth. David was wrong. 
David was falsely accused. David was falsely persecuted. David was falsely hounded. David was falsely ridiculed. David was falsely vilified. When you've been wronged, it's okay to tell your enemy the truth. The Bible says that we're to speak the truth and we're to do it in love. We may not always be able to change those who hate us. We may not be able to change those who are against us, but we can change their understanding of the facts. And like most human beings, our tendency is just to not even bother, to let it go, to forget about it, to live and let live, to go with the flow. Pick your metaphor. But David doesn't continue to hide in the cave until they've spread out. David won't just leave it alone Saul has been listening to lies and David says. People are telling you lies. And maybe. People have lied about you. And maybe people have even told the truth about you. Maybe you're lying to yourself. But whatever is happening, David encourages him to tell the truth. And he says, look, I want to give you some proof. In verses 10 and 11, he says, look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you. Well, really, technically, everybody urged me to kill you. No and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. David doesn't send Saul an unsigned letter with no return address. He doesn't go, dude, when he's out of the game, we'll text him. He doesn't Facebook Saul, and he doesn't do it by phone. He does it face to face. David confronts Saul with the proof. And David comes to term with the one person he has to come to terms with. Saul. And by the way, David isn't holier than thou. David isn't contrasting his holiness and righteousness with Saul. David isn't that kind of a guy. He's basically reminding Saul, look, I could have taken your life and I didn't. And when you were vulnerable and when you were exposed and when you were naked and when you were unprotected, I could have hurt you and I didn't. And that's why he says in verse 12, let the Lord judge between you and me and let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? A whom do you pursue? A dead dog, a flea? You, do you see what he's saying? You think I'm nobody. I'm not worth this mental and emotional turmoil. I'm not worth it. David refers to Saul as the Lord's anointed. He calls him my master in verse six. He calls him my Lord, the king in verse eight. He calls him my father in verse 11. These are words of endearment. These are words of friendship and relationship. David's experience is a painful reminder that all of us will know in life what it is to love someone who thinks 
of himself or herself as our enemy. How did your mom become your enemy? How did your dad become your enemy? How did your children become your enemy? How did your boss become your enemy? How did this happen? And in verse 15 it says, Therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hands. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Isn't it interesting? Saul has a momentary lapse of coherence and sanity. (laughs) I'm not going to talk to him because he just talks crazy talk. I'm not going to talk to her because they just talk like crazy people. And whenever I try to deal with this, it's we need a reality check. Well, let me help you with this for just a moment. When you refuse revenge... When you seek reconciliation, is it possible that they're not going to understand what you're doing or why you're doing it? There is that possibility. You're kidding yourself and I'm kidding you. That when you do the right thing and when you do the decent thing and when you do the honorable thing, it will wind up with your enemy sobbing and tears will come come running down his cheeks and everything will be right in the world. The sun will come up. The birds will sing. The Broncos will not lose any more for the rest of the season. The Rockies will have a comeback next year. Not necessarily. If you do what's right and if you do what's honorable... It doesn't necessarily mean that your enemy will do what's right and that your enemy will do what's honorable. But remember, you don't live to please them. You live to please the Lord. I'm doing this because this is what God wants for me. You tell the truth. But you're never, ever responsible to change another person's heart. Or to change another person's mind. You may sometimes change a person's opinion by giving them the facts. But that doesn't mean you're going to fundamentally change their nature or their character. Chuck Swindoll writes, he may die believing the lie. But down inside your heart, you'll know the fulfillment of that sense of righteous dealings. Your conscience will be clear, unquote. Your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your family, your friend may die believing a lie about you. And Saul recognizes the truth for a brief, glorious moment. Saul says... You're more righteous than I am. You've rewarded me with good, whereas I've rewarded you with evil. 
And you've shown this day how you've dealt with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you didn't kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he not let him go away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done to me this day. And now I know, and now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Samuel has said it earlier. It's already been prophesied. Saul puts into words what he feared to believe and he hoped to prevent. What is that? I'm going to continue to be king and my son's going to be king after me. He knows it's not true. Your flesh may wake you up in the morning and say, you're in control of your life. Hey, guess what? You get to think what you want to think and you get to do what you want to do and you get to be whatever you want to be. And your flesh may wake up in the morning and decide that you're still the Lord or the lady of your little heart or your little life. But deep down, you know, in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Saul asked David for a favor. A favor that he's honor bound to keep. And the encounter results not in peace, but in the absence of war for just a moment. He refuses revenge and he seeks reconciliation. And even though the reconciliation is temporary, even though it's a temporary peace, guess what? David is going to get up in the morning and he's going to be able to look in the mirror and he's going to be able to know that he did what he could in order to make it right. When are we given permission to get revenge? Never. When are we to seek reconciliation always? Will it always result in restoration? No. David refused revenge even when the circumstances allowed it and even when friends recommended it. And sometimes people who don't know God quote scriptures out of context in order to get you to do something that's clearly not right for you to do. Jesus said, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. David risks reconciliation. You know, the Bible tells us that it's the believer's responsibility to seek to heal and mend and restore broken relationships. I'll call him when he calls me. I'll call her when she calls me. David took a huge risk when he determined to make things right with Saul. He did more than just risk his own life. He risked the lives of everyone who was with him. But guess what? It was the right thing to do. Peacemakers are always seen as weak. But it takes a great deal of courage. To attempt to do what's right. He'll also risk retaliation from Saul. In seeking to reconcile, David presents the facts. He proves his faithfulness. He pledges his friendship. 
But he does more than that. He comes up with a serious and effective plan on how to make things right. Is that what you've done? Come up with a serious and an effective plan in order to try and make things right? Think about this serious and effective plan that God put into motion for you. You're wicked, sinful, hopeless, helpless, blind, naked, dirty. So God will send Jesus. And Jesus will open your eyes and he will open your heart and he will clothe your body and he will take your sin and he will bear it himself and he will make a mechanism of forgiveness and hope and a future. That's what I call an effective plan. We're going to have communion in just a moment. I'm going to have Isaac come up and we're going to play some songs and we're going to distribute the elements of communion. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite you to hold on to those elements until we all have an opportunity to partake together. Let's pray for just a moment. Heavenly Father. Lord, for many of us, injury is fresh and the feelings raw. And for some of us, it's the distant memory of a wrong that was done a long time ago. But Heavenly Father, I pray, I pray, I pray for that person who's lived a life, Lord, of trying to get even or seeking revenge. Lord, I pray that we would do exactly what you've asked us to do. Refuse revenge. Seek reconciliation. Try to broker a peace. Lord, we know that that isn't always possible. Lord, we know that the Bible says, so far as it's possible, live at peace with all men. But sometimes it just doesn't seem possible. And so, Lord, when it doesn't seem possible, Lord, I pray that you will give us wisdom, just like it says in James, that if we lack wisdom, we can cry out to you and you'll help us understand what it is that we're supposed to do. And that, Lord, we would begin to understand something that insult and injury becomes a blessed opportunity to do exactly what Jesus has asked us to do. To love our enemy. To bless those who curse us to pray for those who despitefully use us. And Lord, I pray that you would have your will, that you would have your way. And Heavenly Father, for the person who's estranged from you, Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you. That rather than bring about judgment, Lord, you sent grace. And rather than just send us to hell, you decided to save us forever. And Lord, I pray for that person. I pray that they would cry out to you. Lord, I pray that you would speak to their hearts and I pray that you would forgive them. And I pray that you would give them your very presence and that they would experience mercy and grace because they come to the place where they believe that Jesus Christ lived and died on the cross for their sin and rose from the dead. And because he's alive, he can change them from the inside out. 
Lord, heal their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.